Governor Holcomb defends Indiana's HIP 2.0 program. Lawmakers advance a bill allowing more guns in the state house. That plus opposition to the border tax and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending March 17th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Governor Eric Holcomb expressed opposition to the proposed cuts to Medicaid expansion as federal lawmakers debate health care reform. Indiana uses Medicaid expansion dollars available through Obamacare to pay for HIP 2.0, its health care program for low-income Hoosiers. The proposed health care reform bill advanced by U.S. House Republicans would put that funding in jeopardy in the next few years. Governor Eric Holcomb says he's been talking to members of Congress and the Trump administration advocating the need to continue HIP 2.0. Holcomb says he supports reform of the federal health care law and understands the need to reduce federal debt, but says he wants to see Medicaid expansion protected. More than 400,000 Hoosiers are currently enrolled in HIP 2.0. Are you surprised to see the Republican governor criticize a Republican plan? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, Leslie Weidenbenner, managing editor of the Indianapolis Business Journal, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. And Delaney, is this bold leadership from Governor Holcomb? I actually think it is. I mean, this is the only thing that Mike Pence did in four years that has value. And to have, it, have over 400,000 people in Indiana lose coverage because of this kind of Trump-esque march into the sea here is crazy. So I just hope he can deliver the Republican congressional delegation against it because it's so destructive for the people who have gotten the health care and gotten preventive care and uh, been able to be treated for the first time in many cases for years. And I, I hope we can keep it because it's very important to us. What kind of impact can Governor Holcomb have with the congressional delegation? Well, I think he can have a big impact. And also, obviously, we have a lot of strong partners in the administration who can speak to uh, the successful model that HIP 2.0 has been. And so I think there will be a lot of voices weighing in on this. And, you know, there's a long way to go in this process. And uh, I don't think anyone's surprised to see Governor Holcomb uh, have this position. And I think that uh, it's a it will be a thoughtful discussion with all of our D.C. partners. President Trump has said recently, uh, just in the last couple of days, that he is supportive of the, of the House Republican health care plan. When you have Mike Pence in the White House, who's seen the impact that HIP 2.0 has had here in Indiana, you talk about the 400,000 people on the program, why is is keeping the Medicaid expansion a tough selling point out in D.C.? Well, I think there are a couple of political things here. It is Mike Pence, uh, he may have gone along and built HIP 2.0, but I'm not sure he ever necessarily believed in the federal funding that came along with it. Politically, Mike Pence is not going to fight to give to spend lots of federal money or to, to, to have more Medicaid spending. But um, Eric Holcomb has a completely different point of view. He, First of all, he's more practical. Um, but second of all, he has a big political problem if all of a sudden it's up to the states to come up with the money to continue a program like this that's very popular. So it's in his best interest to convince uh, federal officials to continue to send some money to Indiana for a program like this. 
So far, uh, Republican leaders at the State House, who would have to really make some tough decisions if, if uh, Indiana loses its funding, have been sort of in a wait-and-see mode on, well, let's see what actually happens on health care before we hit the panic button, or even, as Brian Bosman called it, the planning button. Now that Eric Holcomb has come out and, and said, no, we need to keep this money, do you expect the domino effect to start to happen here? Yeah, when those, when those statements were, be, were being made uh, before, we were still without the plans from the federal government. Now that the, the budget has been uh, shown, and it's pretty clear that the money is at risk, um, I think you're going to see more reaction, especially as we move through the Senate with the budget now. Um, I think it is important, and we really haven't talked about it. There's, there are a lot of very important aspects for Medicaid when it comes to the people that it covers and, and, the, and the insurance and, and the health care that it provides. Uh, that's very important. But if we don't have those federal dollars behind the Medicaid program that we do now, you can forget about road funding. You can forget about just about anything else uh, because Medicaid will be the place where that money ends up going because of the escalating costs, at least as it's currently envisioned by the federal budget. You know, Paul Ryan and Donald Trump both promised that nobody would lose coverage, we'd have better coverage, and more people would be covered under their health care plan. The current proposal that they have put forth, and which Donald Trump has endorsed, would cut 14 million people off health care. 14 million. And make it prohibitively expensive for people 50 to 64 to be able to afford. So they can't have it both ways. Either they lied during the campaign, or they didn't care. Uh, they don't care. They but absolutely people, don't care. But the people who are advocating to keep um, Obamacare and keep Medicaid can't have it both ways either. The, pro, the, the existing program has become unworkable for many people. It's well, become no unaffordable question. for many people. So you can't just keep it either. No. I mean, there have to be significant reforms That's right. if it's going to continue to um, be able to provide the services that Obama and Democrats promised. That's right. And, it's and not they, doing that. And, well, they tried to do it several times during President Obama's administration and got stonewalled by, we're repealing it, we're repealing it, we're repealing it. If they want to make it work, they've got control of everything. They can come forward yeah. now and make it work uh, and make it work for even more people, but we'll see whether that's the case or not. A couple members of Indiana's congressional delegation, notably, notably Jim Banks, didn't come out immediately and support the House Republican bill. They, they sort of hedged their bets. He, he, Banks in particular talked about concerns, and one of them that he elucidated was the idea of he really wants to see the, the block grants, basically just the federal government give a big chunk of money to the states to manage health care the way they want. Is that good enough? Is that, is that a good solution? Well, I think it's potentially part of the solution. And like I said earlier, this is going to be a really long process, and people need room to move their position and move throughout this so that it can be fine-tuned into a solution. I mean, it, it is a massive challenge, and it's one that will take a lot of work. But fortunately, we have thoughtful leaders like Speaker Ryan and others who are working on it and, and working to build some consensus uh, among the Republican delegation first. Well, that's In the many challenge. ways, HIP 2.0 almost is a block grant because Indiana's not spending the Medicaid money the way Congress intended for it to be spent. Essentially, they've yeah. talked Congress, uh, they've talked the federal federal government into giving Indiana the money and letting Indiana yeah, decide you, how to spend it. If you it. give a block grant, you're also going to cap it. And the next time the economy takes a downturn, that's going to mean fewer people are covered. No doubt. So that's the problem. John, if you were a budget writer at the State House, would you be happy with the with the block grant idea? Um, well, I'd be happier with that than what I've seen so far. Um, but I think that uh, 
I, I think that they would actually. I, th I think that the that the um, uh, the way the fiscal makeup is made right now. Uh, they would like to see that kind of an operation uh, because it would give them some flexibility. Um, but I think we've got a long way to go before we get anything certain. All right. A House committee this week debated a bill allowing legislative staffers to carry guns in the state house. The legislation expands the list of those allowed to carry inside the state's Capitol building, as judges, police, and legislators are already able to do. Republican Senator Jim Thomas's bill has now made it further than a similar proposal last session. It would allow full-time employees of the General Assembly to carry guns in the State House. Tom says it will make it safer for them to walk to and from their vehicles at work. Democrats question the need to bring more guns in the building. Republican sponsors of the bill say they'd support allowing anyone to bring a gun into the State House. Jennifer Hollowell, they don't allow guns in court buildings. Why should the State House be different? Well, and talking about legislative staffers, there are a lot of uh, folks who work at the State House who live near the State House and walk to and from work. There are also a lot of staffers who have to walk a few blocks to their car um, at the end of the evening. And these are folks who are working really long hours, especially during the legislative session, so it could be really late at night. And I think that it's absolutely fair for them to be able to protect themselves on their way to and from work. Legislative staffers don't have to go through security through the, through the metal detectors. They have the badges that allow them to walk into the building as the press do. Um, it, this is probably something that already happens. Are we just codifying an existing practice here? You know, I just want to see what happens when the LSA member who gets an, an amendment request at midnight after a long session is packing <laughs> and what happens to one of these legislators. This is just so ridiculous. Why do we have armed police officers. Maybe we should just let everybody carry, and then, you know, when there's a dispute, they can just simply shoot it out. You know? It is ridiculous. Well, we, we kind of do let everybody carry. We just don't well, let them carry ridiculous. everywhere. I mean, right. other than felons, I mean, I mean, that's kind of the idea. Which is, is why we have so many murders with guns, and so many suicides with guns, and why we can't recognize that. The Second Amendment is not any more sacred than the First Amendment or any other amendment in the Constitution, but people like that senator there think that there are no, no possible restraints that can be put. I suppose, you know, you might have a constitutional right to carry a nuclear weapon into the State House too. I, I Why think not? People should be able to protect themselves. I, I don't. Well, yeah, and what happens most of the time with that is you protect yourself and you wind up dead as a result John. because we don't have the kinds of treatment and t and practices and and all that people think they do. This isn't the Wild West anymore. I'm interested in something that that they talked about in committee, which was the idea of just opening it up entirely and and getting rid of the ban on guns in the state house altogether. That anybody can walk in and, uh, with a gun into the building. Now, a lot of times you'll see one bill one year take a first step, and then the next bill will come back. Well, we did that. Let's just go all the way. Right. Is this an example of one of those cases? Well, uh, if they want to save on security costs because they don't need any of those, uh, those devices that they would have at the front door, it does seem to be a bit of a mixed message, right? We're worried about security, so we install all of these magnetometers, and we hire the people to, to monitor those, uh, and so we're going to stop people from bringing in guns. But if you're going to let everyone bring in a gun, then what's the point? So to your question, um, I think we're a ways away from that. I don't think you're going to see movement toward just allowing everyone to carry a gun into the, to the state house. But um, I think that, that we could see that at some point. We really could. To your could. original question, though, I, I do think there is some difference between the county courthouse and the state house. Um, at the county courthouse level, I mean, for instance, here in Marion County, you know, that you have um, criminal defendants in and out all of the time. You have their families um, 
you know, you've got gang members in and out of the of the the city county building, the courthouse all the time. That's happening across the state. That kind of thing is far less likely to be happening at the state house. That's not a judgment on whether or not letting people carry guns is a good idea, but they are two very different places. Okay. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should legislative staffers be allowed to bring guns into the state house? A, yes, and B, no. Last week's question, are congressional Republicans moving too quickly to pass the health care bill? 87% say yes, they are. 13% say no, they're moving at the right pace. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org IWIR and look for the poll. A coalition of Hoosier, Hoosier businesses this week announced opposition to a federal proposal to impose a 20% tax on imported goods. They call themselves Americans for Affordable Products, a national coalition that includes Indiana small businesses and their supporters. The border adjustment tax, backed strongly during the campaign by President Donald Trump, would make exporting American goods cheaper and importing products more expensive. Indiana Retail Council President Grant Monahan says Indiana's congressional delegation should vote against the tax. He calls it arbitrary and says it could cost the average family almost $2,000 a year. John Ketzenberger, what kind of support do you think this tax could get from Indiana's congressional delegation? I'm sure that there are some hardliners who think it's a good idea to impose a surtax on imported goods. Um, and, you know, we've seen that from the president on down. He's used that as kind of a weapon against uh, countries like Mexico or China uh, in, in this kind of trade rhetoric that he's ratcheted up. Um, I think it's a bad idea, not necessarily for the reasons that were expressed by this group, uh, but if you consider that Indiana is a manufacturing state and we're an agriculture state, and both of those things are highly exported goods, and that four out of the ten top most intensive uh, export-related uh, communities in the, in the country, including Columbus, which is the most import or export-related re uh, uh, city in the country, are based here in Indiana, it's a bad idea to have a trade war because then you're talking about real jobs going away. Because if you start a trade war, those engines that are made at Cummins and those orthopedic devices that are made in Warsaw will stop being exported and those economies will plummet. Yeah, we've been writing. We've actually been writing a lot about this at IBJ, and um, one of the things that you also have to remember is that a lot of companies in Indiana that make goods that are exported are importing a lot of their um, exactly right. their supplies yeah, or their the materials parts. And, yeah, yeah. so it's not as easy as saying that um, that that more companies export than Indiana or import. Um, so it is a very complicated situation, and I think lawmakers, con um, the congressional delegation from Indiana, will actually have a harder time with this than. Uh, congressional folks from many other states because it is so incredibly important to the economy here. Uh, we've seen Donald Trump really make a huge push in his first uh, a few months in office to, to check off the boxes of the things he promised in the campaign. This is obviously a big one. And so far, a lot of those things he's, he's pushed forward with have gotten relatively widespread support among congressional Republicans. Is this one you think that, that might face a, a much harder test in Congress? Well, I think it's I think it's complicated for all the reasons that Leslie already stated. Um, I was going to say, I mean, this proves certainly that the president was serious in uh, on the campaign trail about this issue, and we shouldn't be surprised that this proposal is out here, at least conceptually. Um, and there are a lot of 
there are a lot of voters, a lot of Americans and Hoosiers who would be very supportive of this and framed up that we need to encourage companies to have their operations here, discourage them from moving operations overseas, and this is one way potentially to do that. I don't know I don't know exactly how it will proceed because, and I haven't talked to members of our delegation to know where each of them may stand on this right now, but, I mean, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Leslie just talked, talked about how complicated this stuff is, but is this one of those that, that is complicated but suffers from, it seems, like an easy proposition? It's just like the wall. You know, it's a simple, you can put it in the slogan. And so that's all Donald Trump does, is put something in the slogan. It's not, I mean, manufacturing and exporting agricultural is important, but what about all the people who shop at Walmart and Target? (laughs) And what about getting all the produce that we get in the middle of winter from Mexico? All of that's going to skyrocket in costs. So a lot of the people that supported Donald Trump are going to pay a lot more for products they've taken for granted if this ridiculous idea becomes law. Well, it's certainly a a long way from happening at this point. A Senate committee advanced legislation this week that stops local governments from banning short-term rentals, such as Airbnb. Some local communities regulate or prohibit short-term rentals. Others are exploring ways to do so. But the proposed legislation advanced in committee would bar them from that while establishing guidelines for short-term rentals. Those guidelines include a ban on renting more than 30 days in a row and 180 days total in a year. Supporters of the bill say people increasingly want to travel using short-term rentals and locals banning those rentals would violate property rights. But opponents say the bill takes away what should be a local decision. Leslie Weidenbenner, property rights versus local control. Who wins this fight? So this is one of my favorite things is when the legislature that constantly complains about how the federal (laughs) government tells them what to do then tells local officials what they can do. So this is always a fascinating thing. And and it is not about Republicans and Democrats. It's very much about... rural versus urban or suburban, and just, frankly, the experiences that a lot of these communities are having. I think it doesn't matter. I think in the end, this kind of a thing, this trend of people being able to do uh, use these kind of um, short-term rentals and use their property for them will take over, and in the end, it will be too unpopular to, for communities to ban these kinds of things. So in the long run, I don't think it will matter. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I mean, if... if, if if a local community wants to do this, arguably they're much more responsive to their constituents' demands than the state ha- than, than state lawmakers can be, being there only two, or, you know, three or four months a year. So, shouldn't this then be left to the locals to let it be on their heads? Well, I think that the home rule concept is really very good here. Um, I think for a lot of reasons that you just suggested, but also because. Technology is moving so fast, and we've seen it with Uber and and Lyft, you know, those car-sharing services. Uh, We've seen it in other areas, the disruption that has occurred. Regulators have a hard time keeping up with these kinds of things. And so when you're talking about a part-time legislature versus a full-time city councilor, for instance, in this case, um, it's probably best left to the local form of government to make a decision uh, that, that reflects what its constituents think is best. This is... Um this is, un, you know, the, we've seen other things where we are taking away theoretically local control. Things like the smoking ban, for instance, the statewide mm-hmm. smoking ban. Gun. Is this, is this, is this just another in that line? It's, it is the same inconsistency that Leslie pointed out earlier. It's we're all for local control, except if we don't agree. And if we don't agree, then we want statewide control. We want it of guns. We want it of smoking. We want it of everything that we think matters. 
local control is the way to deal with this. It is more adaptable. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the notion that investors are buying properties simply to rent them out. But if, you know, the average Joe wants to rent out his house for race weekend or something, you know, it seems to me that's not the government's business at all. So local control is the way to go. To that end, fundamentally, should local governments be banning things like Airbnb? Well, I, I generally would fall on a local control side myself. I think here we have also the challenge of statewide continuity, which some would argue for in this case. But, um, it, you know, it, it was a long fight in the House, and Representative Lehman has worked really hard to advance this bill. And I think that there still are some challenges ahead, but at the end of the day, locals are, are never going to be for this. Federal Education Secretary Betsy DeVos said this week she wants to see more school districts follow what she calls Indianapolis Public Schools' out-of-the-box management approach. Nine schools currently make up IPS's Innovation School Network, a management system created by state law in 2014. The law allows IPS to contract with principals, nonprofits, or charter operators to run schools autonomously. School leaders set their own curriculum, culture, spending, and hiring practices. And educators at these schools are not part of the district's teachers' union. DeVos, who wants less federal oversight in education, said IPS gives parents and school leaders more control and choice over their classrooms. And Delaney, we've talked a lot about Indiana's influence at the federal level in this new administration. And we've often talked about that as it, as it connects to health care. But do you think the feds will increasingly turn to Indiana for education issues? What's our graduation rate? What are our test scores? How many college graduates do we have percentage-wise? Look, if this stuff works, that's terrific. But I want an evaluation of whether this or charter schools had made a difference in the outcomes. And so far, the statistics and, and the uh, inquiries I've seen have not borne that out. And it seems to me that's what we ought to be doing. We, we, innovation for innovation's sake is senseless. Innovation for improvement's sake is a different story. But if it isn't improving... What are we doing? And nobody seems to want to uh, analyze whether these charter schools or the innovation schools are doing any better than the traditional schools. Sorry. <laughs> you will find perhaps no bigger fan of school choice, of, of, of school vouchers, than Betsy DeVos, other than maybe Bob Boehning in the, in the Indiana <laughs> State House. Um, so to that end, do you, as I talk about looking to Indiana, is that particularly an area where the Indiana model of, of, school, of, of, of school vouchers will be spread elsewhere? These aren't vouchers. I, 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 no, I, this is, this is, that was okay. something different. But I'm talking about larger Indiana education in general, the sort of stuff that Indiana has been doing that a lot of other states haven't done or that Indiana well, did A lot of first. other states follow the Constitution, which says you don't give money <laughs> to parochial schools, for example, but not Indiana, apparently. I really believe that it will be. Um, other states have been looking to Indiana on education reform issues uh, for years now, for the past several years, and so it's not surprising that the federal government would be also. And Betsy DeVos is very familiar with what we've been doing in Indiana. I also want to point out that I think it's a real testament to Dr. Farabee and the work at IPS that they have been doing over the last few years to innovate and to find ways that IPS can help and work with, whether it's charter schools or neighborhood folks, and give parents and students choices and control and give teachers an opportunity to be a part of that process. The school that she highlighted is one where you have it's teachers and parents coming together for a neighborhood approach 
and they also will have accountability tied to that with IPS. But I think it's How? I think it's a great thing for Indiana that yes, we will be a model for even more. How states do they in the have accountability tied in this to that? Process. They don't have accountability they, tied to vouchers. They have they have accountability with IPS. The I think there are nine innovation schools there that are. IPS has, mm-hmm. and they have their own built-in accountability okay. systems. Where's the accountability for vouchers? Who well, is looking is at vouchers? There is accountability for vouchers, but it is actually looser, I think, than it is Much. for other schools. Um, but I do think uh, Indiana will end up being a model for some kind if there is movement in the Trump administration for vouchers, Indiana will be a model. There's almost no other way to go. I mean, Indiana has the largest, the broadest um, voucher program. So if you're going to move in that direction, you have to look at what Indiana's doing. Now, that doesn't make it a good policy or a bad policy. And I do think you're right, Brandon. Indiana has not done as much as it should to study whether or not the the students who are taking advantage of vouchers are achieving more than they would have otherwise. John, would something like a state-level voucher program work when replicated at a federal level? It would be more difficult because the, the way this funding is uh, runs from the federal government to the states is much different than it is from Indianapolis to the commu- school communities. So it would be very difficult to do. And we're also assuming that the Department of Education maintains a kind of relationship and the funding ma- apparatus that it currently has. So it would be a very difficult adaptation. All right. Finally, the NCAA tournament is in full swing, including just a few blocks from here at Bankers Life Fieldhouse. And Governor Holcomb filled out a bracket this week, one that doesn't advance a single Indiana team beyond the Sweet 16. Jennifer Hollowell, did Holcomb betray Hoosiers by not choosing some home state teams to go farther? No. Uh, and first of all, you'd be really hard-pressed to find someone who is a bigger uh, promoter of basketball across Indiana than That's Governor true. Holcomb, who shot a, shot a shot basket, a in, every basket county. in every uh, yeah. county across the state. And uh, so maybe this will be an added motivation for folks to make it. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, Leslie Weidenbenner of the Indianapolis Business Journal, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.